This is the Cinematologist Podcast. On today's episode, we discuss Akira Kurosawa. Dario interviews the curators of a brand new extensive BFI retrospective on the Japanese filmmaker's work. The filmmaker Azif Kapadia and the writer Ian Hayden-Smith. Elsewhere in the episode, Neil and Dario talk about the continuing influence of Kurosawa and in particular focus on some of his post-war Japanese contemporary work, including deep dives into I Live in Fear and High and Low. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me, as always, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. I'm very good, Neil. How are you? I'm okay, yeah. I'm in a a friend's attic room um, in between houses currently, and yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be talking to you today back on the podcast, getting back into the rhythm of recording every couple of weeks. It's nice to be back in the in the rhythm of it so uh how are you doing yeah i'm good um just getting into the beginning of term i'm actually doing some teaching uh this this term rather than just sort of you know admin paper shuffling management that kind of stuff you know which is all very important apparently um but um yeah what's interesting though is i've been uh, watching quite a, a lot of films as well and um i, I suppose it, it it ties a little bit into you know the episode that we're, we've got today, which is on a, a classic filmmaker, of course, Akira Kurosawa. Um, watched Vertigo with the our Monday night film club group last night, which was interesting because you know there probably uh, three or four of them had seen it, and the rest hadn't. And it was really interesting to rewatch that again. And I I I, I did find it quite slow you know i hate that that as a derogatory term saying something is just slow but i'm really not a f- not a, a fan of vertigo in over and above say rear window and psycho i'd rather watch those two movies above vertigo you know any day of the week um and yeah it was interesting talking about that idea of suspension of disbelief and i find it now very difficult to watch a film like vertigo and probably hitchcock generally and maybe even 50s filmmaking from hollywood more broadly um as anything other than a than a film studies academic exercise because i can never get into the sense of 
this is a real scenario. And maybe, you know, people who've written a lot about Vertigo talk about it, you know, the, the psychology of it. And it's a you're kind of experiment in that. And it's not a realist film because I was lecturing on sort of realism versus classicism versus formalism on, on Monday. And it was an interesting um, film then to screen in relationship to, to that. But then it's also fed into a lot of the films that I've I've seen over the last week or so. So because I've gotten into... Um, a lot of watching again, which probably will I'll talk about the the film specifically on the bonus. Seen as on the bonus last week, we didn't really talk about films at all. No, we uh, we we talked about other stuff uh, this time. Yes, promise there'll there'll be some film chat on the film podcast uh, bonus. But um, as a lot of that watching at the cinema, which again will tie into what we're going to one of the things that might come out of today's interview in terms of like how are you seeing this stuff you seem to be going to the cinema a lot as well as sort of just watching more films yeah i mean i talk a little bit about that in the up upcoming um newsletter um that i uh, was very lucky to be put on the sight and sound um press screening list so i got to see eo the simoleski film is that his surname? I'm pronouncing that correctly. Skolomovsky. Um, so, Skolom- yeah, yeah. Um, apologies. I didn't have it in front of me. Um, so I saw that there. Then I've got my Picture Houses Central membership. So it's always easy now. I've still got about five free films to, to go and see. I'm paid up still to uh, Movie Go. So you get a, f- a free film every week for that. I do want to go and see Holy Spider this week. Um, but I also watched All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, at home um so you know it's a mixture of stuff now we went to see tar at the weekend um so yeah i mean i'm going i am seeing stuff at at, you know on the big screen let's say again because we we, we watched vertigo the other night um in the university so it was just in a university seminar room um but yeah i just i I do find the i I do still try to go as much as i can to the cinema because i just do find it i mean i've kind of come around full circle i mean remember when i was down at falmouth and i was doing a lot of work on on sort of uh new forms of interaction and the, and, and you know di- digital screening at the, at the burgeoning sense of of the streaming era back in sort of you know t- 2012 onwards and the relationship to social media and that that kind of stuff was a big topic back back then before it came kind of you know more mainstream now um but I've kind of come full circle on that where, where I actually do feel that there is something unique, particularly from a concentration perspective, that you switch everything off and and you 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 watch the film in the with the big screen and also with an audience. So there is a kind of unspoken aura or atmosphere in 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 a given room. I think um, that, that that comes from the apparatus of of the, the you know the cinematic auditorium. Yes, I feel um, I feel like a pauper um, watching Kurosawa films on my iPad uh, ahead of today's episode. But you know, that's that's them's the rubs. Um, and uh, I did watch one on the big on the big telly, um, the film that I'll talk about at length, more length later on um, when we get into the episode. <laughs> yeah. So, do you want to set up the episode for us because this is an interview that you conducted? Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, it was just an invite again from Contacts Now at the BFI who asked if we wanted to um, do an episode on on Kurosawa. They have a retrospective season, which I think think essentially is every film. Um, 
and it has been curated by the filmmaker Asif Kapadia and the writer Ian Hayden Smith. Um, and yeah, it was just great to be offered the chance to, to speak to them. We, we or I spoke to them in the afternoon before they were doing their launch event. So they were going to do a, like a two-hander on stage at the BFI. And then I forget which film that they were screening at that particular moment, but there was a film on afterwards. I think I say it, they say it in the interview, but I can't remember. And it, yeah, it was it's an interesting duo because we talked a little bit about how they got to know each other, I think through De Sheffield Dogfest. And there was a sense that, you know, um, there was the writer and the filmmaker kind of coming together to collaborate um, and coming from sort of different angles in terms of their their love and admiration of uh, of Kurosawa, so uh, and, and I think that difference that complementarity comes across in the in the interview quite a lot that you're that you're going to hear now. And yeah, I've I've managed to see quite a few of the films: Seven Samurai um, at the BFI at NFT One, which was just just amazing, just amazing. I mean, I say I think I said to you, didn't I? Uh, maybe I said it on one of the last podcasts that. It would have been on my top 10 all-time films if I'd have seen it at the cinema before the list came out, as it were. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just a great opportunity to, to go back to Kurosawa. I mean, again, it's probably the, the second filmmaker that we've gone back to again. And, we, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to make a habit of that, but I think that the, the opportunity to, to discuss um, maybe some of... I mean, in the interview... I, we, we discussed some of the big, you know, marquee films, let's say, of the, the masterpieces of Kurosawa's uh, oeuvre. Um, but you and I, I think we're going to talk about some some of the slight, not obscure, but some of the, the films that perhaps don't get the same attention as, as the as the big the big named films. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of the, the this, this is the second time we've gone back. We did it with um, Hannah Strong and her book on Sofia Coppola. And I think both times they've been good opportunities where it's like oh actually yeah they for the coppola it was you know how has her career and perception of her career shifted in, in you know in the last couple of films since since we did lost in translation um a few years ago and then certainly for for this one it was you know as as your conversation covers very you know accurately there's a lot of films it's a big career you know the idea that when we did yojimbo that was the idea that was all we had to say about Kur yeah. Kurosawa was was it was, was obviously we never we never thought that would be the case. And what what I really enjoy about the, the one of the things I enjoy about the conversation you have is is how they talk about it as an act of curation and how to consider phases themes in a filmmaker's body of work that's that that's that vast. And I, I certainly I took it as an opportunity, as I know you did, to to yeah to kind of to root around in some of the some of the other and I think we you know I just took the approach of I was going to watch th those films set in contemporary Japan you know rather than historical Japan um and see what emerged from just spending time with a few of those films so it's been a really great opportunity that, that we've we've had you know from the BFI to to spend time with this filmmaker and it was a nice opportunity to do a different approach rather than just one film or, or, or like you say that the same films be able to just you know spend a bit of time with other titles yeah and also listening to various film podcasts sometimes i'm a a little bit jealous of when they go for when they, when they have the time let's say for more deep dives you know and i've always enjoyed episodes where we've gone from gone for one film and just gone gone to town on it um you know for an hour or so or something like that and um mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just great. It's great that we get the opportunities to to um, 
to have the interviews that we do and do the subjects that, that we do. But then occasionally I'm just like, oh, it would be great to just sort of really talk about the, this film without without sort of any any dressing around it but i think this this was such a good opportunity for this uh for this conversation it really uh, both of the guys i think um got into the spirit of the kinds of questions that i was that I, you know a cinematologist kind of interview let's say and it was and they were very happy it was great for them to have a kind of warm up act for their you know on stage which which they were doing sort of half an hour afterwards so uh, so that was nice um but before we get to the interview, I just very quickly want to mention a couple of people who've been sharing the podcast. So thanks very much to Beth Morris um, for recommending the podcast on t- Twitter, who, um, yeah, I mean, that was in reaction to the Ennis Main episode. Um, so thank you very much for for saying how much you enjoyed that. And then uh, Mark Hancock, not Matt Hancock, I hasten to add, Mark Hancock. Um, who continually tweets about the the podcast? So thanks, Mark, for your continued support, and is a is a Patreon subscriber. If you want to um, join us on Patreon for our our little after party soiree where we will be talking about films this time, and also getting the uh, bonus um, newsletter, which is extensive and even more extensive than usual because Neil's back in charge of it this <laughs> this month. Um, and thanks very much. Yeah, we've got a new Patreon subscriber who is enigm- enigmatically called MS. So I don't know what that stands for, but thank you very much for for joining and become becoming a um, a Patreon subscriber. We really um, appreciate it. Yes, thanks for all of your continued support across various social media platforms and, and the Patreon. I am back uh, on the on newsletter duty, uh, my first time, and. Uh, I think you'll find it. I think people find it different. I've gone for a different approach, certainly to my recommendations. So hopefully, it won't feel as overwhelming as it might have done in the past with me just throwing four thousand things at you. Uh, I'm I'm trying to be a bit more considerate um, with that. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully you you will still enjoy it if you are a Patreon and it, and it might entice you to to sign up if you're not. Um, but for now, let's uh, let's move into the main part of the episode where Dario and I will be talking about Kurosawa um, and some of his some of his films, particularly around sort of contemporary uh, post-war Japan. But before that, here is Dario with the curators of the BFI season, Asif Kapadia and Ian Hayden Smith. で、夢の中にいるような気がする。目は生命がどんなに美しいのかってことを
狂った今の世で気が狂うなら気は確かだ So, I'm at the BFI South Bank with filmmaker Asif Kapadia and writer Eden Hayden Smith, who have curated an extensive, indeed complete, season on the master Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, I was thinking about my first encounter with Kurosawa's work, and this was, I think, this was studying film at university, and one of my lecturers. Back in the VHS days, kind of showed us two or three clips, you know, swapping the tapes in and out and what have you. And he showed us scenes from Hidden Fortress and Yojimbo and then compared them to Star Wars. And I think it was a way in of saying to the students, you know, the films that you love and are at the center of kind of late 20th century popular culture are rooted in form and theme back to this post war Japanese filmmaker. So I thought maybe you guys could start by. You know, talking a little bit about, about how you got into Kurosawa. So I've been thinking about this because of the season. I mean, the reason why I kind of wanted to do this, I was asked by、um, Jason Wood at the BFI, and I'm a filmmaker and I'm a film fan, and I've always been interested in Japanese culture and Japanese cinema. So, you know, the kind of holy trinity in a way of, of Kurosawa, who kind of, in my experience, was the kind of samurai filmmaker, the、sure. action filmmaker, and Ozu, who did a kind of, kind of smaller, quieter films, you know, maybe family films. And then I remember when I was at film school, someone mentioning Mizuguchi, who I'd not really heard of, and then seeing Ogetsu and being blown away. So I, I kind of was, I'm always interested in world cinema. I love the kind of idea of like taking away on a journey. So for Kurosawa, my first experience was. You know, probably the Seven Samurai and、sure. seeing that, and, and kind of remember thinking, God, this is long. But the, what I've been thinking about is I think I experienced Kurosawa subconsciously by the filmmakers that he influenced.、Yeah. I saw the films by them,、right. saw those films, loved those films, and then only later on realized, oh no, they were ripping him off. <laughs> He'd done it all before. So, you know, my first experience of Kurosawa is probably watching a Sergio Leone film. And like thinking, this is great. I love what they're doing here. And then not really understanding where it came from. And it's only later on I saw Kurosawa's films on a big screen. But the honest truth is, I probably had only seen a few of them over the years on the big screen. I、yeah. think that's what's exciting about this is you get a chance to see them all properly the way they were intended. Yeah, absolutely. Ian?、Um, one of the elements was the Christmas issue of the Radio Times. As, as a kid, I realized really early that. That I was attracted to watching films and I couldn't work out why. But rather than anything else, rather than cartoons or programs on TV, there was something about a movie that really got me. And we only ever had the Radio Times at Christmas, the bumper double <laughs> issue. And unlike now, where you can access films anytime, this was more often than not the only time you could see a whole glut of films over one period. Films were showing all the time in the day and in the evenings. And every day you would have one large image. And it was like the big film that's showing that day. And I remember, like, I think it was about 84, Diva had this amazing picture. And all these other films. And one of them was, it wasn't even a film poster or a, a still. It was some kind of cartoon or something created by someone in the art department、um, of a Kurosawa film.、Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was Kagamusha.、Um, and that was my first. 
inkling or fir- first time I'd, I think probably I'd heard of Japanese cinema, let alone Kurosawa. Um, and then I, I grew up in Wales and the nearest art house cinema, uh, cinema was in Cardiff, Chapter Art Cinema. And, um, and they had a screening of Kagamusha there and this would be the late 1980s. And that was my first experience. I'll be honest, I didn't like it very much. Right. Um, it's a, that's one hard one to get to start with, I think. It's, isn't it's it? a tough one. And then came Yojimbo yeah. in college. Yeah. And I know Asif, that's the film he's going to be introducing in February. And that's kind of almost like the perfect access point for Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, th- I actually think that story that I told about the university it was the scene from the cantina with the lopping off of the arm and sort of sorting out of the bad guys, you know? Um, so, you know, the, the, the tagline for this season is the most visionary Hollywood director that Hollywood has never had, which is, you know, obviously a sort of clever way into it. And, you know, you, you've mentioned there, you started to mention this influence that is just seems to be all-encompassing. You know, all of the, the kind of big masters of contemporary Hollywood sort of mentioned Kurosawa. But I, I just wondered, you know, in sort of re-watching the films and putting the season together, what are some of the ways maybe that you guys have articulated and what you're going to talk about in your intro tonight in terms of that, the specifics of that in influence? Well, it was, it was really great because um, Asif was already on board. And likewise, Jason Wood, who both of us have known for a very long time, um, approached me and said, would you be interested in working with Asif? And then we met and we'd previously worked um, last year at Sheffield Dog Fest. Yeah. In, and Asif put together this fantastic program of documentaries that had influenced him. And um, we started chatting about it, and it was Asif who came up with this. Yeah, just I remember you saying right out from the start, we are not doing it chronologically. Right. Um, and actually, bizarrely, Kurosawa is interesting that even if you did show his work chronologically, unlike most directors, you've actually got a, a selection of brilliant films throughout the whole of his career. Most, most directors, you have that yeah. one core period. Then either side, it it gets yeah, a bit something dodgy. Of a bell curve with most. Yeah, it's it's yeah. quite amazing with him. You do have this amazing start, bit of a dip, then the, this incredible middle period, but then the later period, he comes back with amazing films. But that was really great because having that in our minds, we're not doing it chron- chronologically. Meant well, what are we doing? And then you start to look mm. at elements of his work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, some are themes, but uh, some are things that just come around naturally. The professional lives whether it's a doctor, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's a, a, a ronin or samurai, you've got these characters who live by their profession and then on from that you get honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you start playing around with it. And so we ended up kind of coming together and sort of agreeing yeah. on these, these six yeah. what themes. Was it, what was your aversion to, the, to, just out of a matter of interest, to, to doing this chronolo- chronologically? Was it more that you didn't want to kind of be didactic or completist or the sense that the... Once you, if you see them out of order, you actually are able to pick out the kind of patterns in a more complex way, maybe. Partly it was like, how do we group them differently to what, sure. you know, there's obviously, you can always just do everything chronologically, but how yep. do you group it to make it interesting and to mix them up? I don't know how many, I know it's the BFI, so maybe there are people who say, I'm going to start at the beginning, and I'm going to go to the end, and I'll be there for every, I mean, it could happen. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. I'd love to do that. I wish I had a time to do that. I don't. I, so most of us were going to dip in. Yeah. When are yeah. you actually able to go to see a film? 
when is that film on? <laughs> when is that film print available? There are all these things that come into programming, which I'm not uh, from that background, but there are kind of like just how things work and how do, and then it's like, how do you just make it interesting? So they're not like all the black and white ones or, you know, yeah, all the yeah, ones yeah. about blokes with swords. And, you know, I think, mm. I think that was part of it. And Ian did a brilliant job of doing all the hard work of how do we kind of put this down sure. and we have to start somewhere. I think in the end, the main thing is you should see them on a big screen. Yeah. This is the opportunity to see them the way they're intended on great screens, sound-wise, see the cinematography, see the design. I think they all look amazing. I think that's mm. the thing that I myself forget. You know, Well, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it, okay? I haven't seen them all on a big screen. So I'm still learning along the way. I'm just here because I'm a fan, but I also know there's so many films I haven't seen yet and I've been saving them up. And that's one of the reasons why the BFI exists for me is that there is a season coming of a filmmaker who everyone said is one of the greatest filmmakers, but I never got to see them the way they yeah, were intended. Yeah. And I know I can watch them on a BFI player. I know I can watch them on my iPad or my phone or while I'm kind of on a train, but it is nice every now and again to see some, like, some of the world's greatest work of cinema on the best screens and mm. then understand and then to look at my god they're not dated you know they're yeah, really yeah. brilliant he's really good at talking about things which even though you know there are japanese elements that you might not always get or the performances might be big or there's something else going on you can see a good director oh, yeah, <laughs> when yeah, you yeah, see yeah, a good yeah, director yeah. you can see why he's the guy that coppola Scorsese, Lucas, and all the kind of American movie brats that I grew up with, they said, this is the man. Yeah, He's yeah. the God, you know? And I think that that's, that's what I think is important for, for me to look back at it and see Rashomon, for example. You know, I cannot believe, you know, what is that? 80 years old? What mm. is it? 70, 80 yeah, years yeah, old? Yeah. 72 years it's old. It's so it doesn't fresh. feel dated. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they don't feel dated. They were kind of dated when they were made, but they don't, and they haven't dated since. They're still really challenging and clever and cinematic kind of visually they're just amazing mm. but also intellectually they're really really clever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think, think just uh, quickly a couple of things you said there you know, Rashomon first of all um January is kind of pivoted around Rashomon because it's a re-release and what's what's great about it is that some people perhaps talk about Kurosawa's genre cinema generally that's people who are just looking at his period films but even those they're not just Shanbara the the sword and a uh, swordplay period dramas. There's lots of other things going on in there. Um, but Rashomon's really interesting because that wasn't... He created a genre. He created something completely new yeah. with Rashomon. Yes, it might be based on um, two classic short stories by a Japanese writer, but, but what he put on film is, is just extraordinary. I, I love the fact... Um, Asif says, yeah, we decided to mix it up. That was the other thing you said. I remember you saying mix. And so the thing about creating these six different strands was whatever we do, it can't just be five period films in one strand. It has to be something that makes someone think, okay, right, I saw Yojimbo, and that's the professional life of, of a Ronin. Mm. But actually, you know, why don't I now go and see Drunken Angel about a doctor treating a Yakuza or stray dog about a cop who loses his gun? And, and so our hope was you might go and see the really well-known film and that will get you thinking about the, what we're trying to do with that strand and perhaps leap on to something else. Yeah. And, and that's something we really wanted to, to kind of encourage. And don't you dare ever watch a Kurosawa film on an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs>
in, <laughs> in in terms of those, ju- just to sort of name those strands that you were talking about, you, you, uh, the the January strands are society, social status, and honour, and then the February ones are professionalised family and unclassifiable. I think she'll get get out clause. Uh, okay, there, okay that, very good. yeah, that, that's the kind of and a get all the way. <laughs> it, it is a get and clause, but I I think the reason uh, kind of came down to it. Dosu Uzala, first of all, is is the only film that he directed that was made outside of Japan, fully made outside Japan, and not in Japanese. Madadeo is the closest he's ever come to a comedy. Um, Dreams is a portmanteau film of seven films, um, originally planned to do eight, but seven together. And the two Sanshiro Shigata films, yes, they're period films, and they're about someone who wants to be a judo master, but they don't fit exactly into that, that area um, of a professional life or honor, strictly speaking. But the other reason I wanted to do that, and it's something that I'll say in any introduction or on stage, sure. is everything could be unclassifiable. None of these fit yeah, yeah, yeah. perfectly into their categories. It's like one big Venn diagram. Yeah. And yeah. they each jump over. So having something unclassifiable hopefully will make people think, mm. yeah, actually, I can, I can get from this what I want. Yeah. I- that leads leads into something that um, I read in one of your intros, one of the pieces you did leading up to the the, the season. And maybe you can speak to this, uh, Asif, because it's this idea that it's actually a little bit difficult to uh, define Kurosawa through a quite a rigid formalist language because the breadth of his filmmaking is so epic, epic and, and different, you know. I mean, there are technical motifs like the wipe and then there's sort of symbolic ones like rain or what have you. But to me, it's the, it's the framing and the movement and, you know, the way that the, the movement of the camera is in symbiosis with the, his blocking and his working with the actors and all that kind of thing. And to me, he's a bit like Spielberg in that he just intuitively knows where the camera and, and you know, where it should go. So, well, I, I mean, like Spielberg knows because of him. Because of him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, but I was just wondering, like, as a filmmaker yourself, is that something that you can kind of watch and kind of think, yeah, I can see what he's doing there and take that for my own work, you know? Absolutely. I think, yeah, that's one of the reasons that he's, he is technically amazing. You know, he's he's so brilliant with how the story is told visually. Um, and, and as I said, all of the other departments, the way the design works, really, really clever, you know, set-piece sequences and using all of the tools of filmmaking, like weather, rain, mud, you know, cuts, music, sound, wipes, it's everything. It's the design, it's the costumes, it's colour, when there's colour, or if it's black and white, light, dappled light, sunlight, you know, flat light. Really, everything is has been designed and planned and drawn out and then shot and executed in a way that kind of remains timeless. And then, you know, just looking kind of at the list of films as we're talking, you're like, what amazing body of work. You know, you see it on amazing. a page, it's like, you just sort of look at how many films in every year there's a great movie that came out and you just think of my god it seems so hard as a filmmaker how hard to make one film Mm. and then you look back an era when you have a group of filmmakers who made a great film every one year two years or sometimes two films a year and i think that kind of was a it's another life you know it's another universe and i think each one then to stand the test of time in its own way and and so i think the main thing is for them to be seen I think that's what I'd say. And I, I look at the list and I think the themes and the groups and how we put them out, it, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's seeing them and seeing some of the films you haven't heard of. And I'm speaking to myself as much as I am to anyone else. You know, seeing the films that you don't know, 
and just trying them out. And I think you mentioned something, Ian, which is like, as you get older, as I get older, you see a film and you go, it didn't really work for me. And then you see it again, you go, oh, now I kind of get it. Yeah. And then you might see it again, you go, God, it felt really slow. And I think that's just interesting with like great cinema is you can watch them again and again at different times and you feel different things because you're different. You know, yeah, yeah, your yeah. situation and your experience changes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say with that really great example is in, in many ways, the, um, the, the two main actors, uh, Takashi Shimura and Toshiro Mifune, um, in Kurosawa's films, uh, to see them together as a kid, well, in my late teens, uh, in Seven Samurai. And I just got the wildness of Mifune. Mm. And I wasn't old enough to understand Shimura. Yeah. And now I watch that film and I can see the wisdom of Shimura and, and the sense of patience and the planning and understanding the long game rather than responding in the moment. And uh, I mean, that's, that's the wonderful thing, like you said, about watching these films at different stages in your life. Mm. You, you respond so differently to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems, just sort of reading a little bit of the background of, again, refreshing myself with the background of um, Kurosawa's context, you know, his early life and then his introduction into the film industry in, in Japan. It's interesting because he's he is a product of a system but he's a true artist, I think, in the sense that he seems he's curious and influenced by so many other things outside of film. I mean, you know, he could talk about the fact that he was influenced by Hollywood himself and then gave back. So, you know, he's a big fan of John John Ford and, and what have you. But, you know, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, martial arts, painting, you know, uh, politics and Marxism, all of these things are actually woven through a, a lot of the time in, in, in many of his films, you know? I think there's something really essential that I know this is, uh, well, through experience, it's, it's a, a thing that Asif has talked about passionately. Um, before he became a filmmaker, uh, he was a screenwriter, solidly a screenwriter for two years, but yeah. obviously for the first 20 years of his career as a director, he needed money, so he carried on writing scripts for other people. But before... He became even a screenwriter. He was an apprentice director. Yep. From third assistant director to second to first to chief. And that's, that's something you've talked about, Asif, about this difference between the West and East in terms of filmmaking. Yeah, it's interesting because in, in, the, U, in the UK, we have a very American tradition of, you know, films are controlled by the production. Producers are the big power. They hire a director. And then you have, when you're shooting, you have an assistant director. And the assistant director is really a production person. Their role is to make sure you run on time and to be the person in between the director, the creative, and the production, the producers, the money. And, and so they're the ones that, like, time, keeping track of time. How many sure. shots have you got? How much, when did we turn over? Literally, what time did we start shooting, end shooting? How many pages did we get? What did we miss? And... This is my experience, okay? So that's very much the European... Sorry, that's the Western kind of tradition. That's the American system that we in the UK have. Yeah. I've worked in India and I've worked in France as well. Um, and a lot of countries, particularly in India, and I think it seems like in J Japan, the, 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 the leader is the, is the director. The director runs the show. They are in control. And the way you learn is by assisting a director. You work your way up by being an assistant in a department. And it's very different. Because if I wanted to get into filmmaking, I can't assist a film director. No. Right? I might be able to watch them work, but you really, there's no role. Mm. So it's very really hard to learn. 
you have to go off and make your own films. And what, I, what was really interesting working in India, which is very similar, I think, to the kind of more Asian tradition, is that the director is the boss on top. They have different departments and people in the departments report back to them. Yeah. And every department reports back to them in a very different way, not necessarily the production. And so he learned the trade by watching other directors, yeah, by assisting yeah. them. And that may then become, I need you to go and find a location. It may be, I need you to go and cast someone. It may be, it's more creative yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than make sure they're on time. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. I think that is how you learn. And yeah, then that's yeah. how you work your way up and you have a, my, a master who you're learning from. And then you become the master and you teach yeah, the yeah. next generation, which is a much better system. No, absolutely. I was reading about this sort of mentorship with, with Kajiro uh, Yamamoto and you know the the wide range of roles he actually performed as an assistant director and it seems like it it you know it must logically give you a more holistic sense of the entire filmmaking process you know i think i think it's it's brilliant but what what it is is it all comes down to you know who's in charge the art or the money mm. and i think that's what's sort of interesting my my experience of it is that you you can't break a system which is very the hollywood tradition yeah. is that you become successful as a director enough to be the producer yeah, to yeah. be in charge whereas in in india everyone will say how can i assist you how can i work for you in order to do that and you go right i want you to go and find me a location you've been on this film all the way through you know what i like you know what i don't like go and find them so when i worked in india on the warrior which was me being inspired by leone inspired <laughs> by kurosawa yeah. on my first film I wanted it to kind of feel like one of those films, but also I worked within an Indian system, which meant I had an associate director who was a young director who wanted to work with me, who was there for the casting, who was there for the shoot, who was there for the location finding. We did it all. And then we told the kind of heads of the department, this is what we want. Mm. And then we let them run it. And I found oh, it was a great system of working. And if something goes wrong, which invariably they do, somebody else understands the director's vision. I know it's changing, uh, the tradition, but I found that way of working great. And it's very similar in France as well. The assistant director has a different role. And I think it is very much the UK's much more influenced, it seems, by the, the kind of US studio. Yeah. But it's that level of, of, of trust and nurturing. Like Yamamoto's last film was, Kur or Kurosawa's last film was Yamamoto's 1941's Horse. And Yamamoto was already working on another film and pretty much said, you take over. Yeah, yeah. But that, that idea of trust, it's, I mean, it does happen. I, I remember a story about um, Spielberg was preparing uh, Schindler's List or was already, had already started working on Schindler's List but was working on Jurassic at the same time. And he turned to Richard Attenborough and said, look, can, can you kind of take over Jurassic for a couple of, of weeks and I'll go off? And Attenborough said, no, you, you can't do that. You have to wait. But that level of trust. And likewise, Charlotte Wells with Aftersun, um, which I think is a wonderful film, she was on a um, a course at uh, Sundance, and she had a, as her mentor Barry Jenkins. Right, and it would have been really easy to rush her, but Barry Jenkins. I saw one interview with him where he said, "You could see the process happening, and this was not going to happen quickly." So it's just finding that moment of saying, "Okay, we'll give you that time," and having to get to a point where you do have to make the film. Mm -hmm. But she was given so much time that you end up with the film she made, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it is a great film, um, for sure. Um, just on the, 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 the Western context of Kurosawa, I mean, there's been a shitload written, written about that. And it's, 
It's interesting that his first film, um, Sanshiro Sugata, was considered too Western for Japanese censors at the time. And it was only Ozu that intervened, apparently, and, and yeah. got, it, got it released. Um, but interestingly, this is a critique that's followed Kurosawa throughout his career. He's too Western, and, and maybe that essentially collates to too populist in comparison to, as you said earlier, honestly, Ozu and Mizuguchi. So... To me, though, it's kind of like he he defies that highbrow, lowbrow, that that sense of genre versus auteur cinema. So I, I don't know. I, I wondered what you think of that critique and why it's you know it's a little I, bit disingenuous. I I think. I, I, I think that sometimes being first doesn't work in your favor in the long run. And obviously, a lot has been written about and and, and at the time, Rashomon was the thing that opened the floodgates because it won at Venice first of all, then it won an honorary Oscar. And it was followed by Ozu and then Mizuguchi. And you then have the filmmakers, or the critics who became filmmakers, the Caillou de Cinema, the, the pre-French uh, New Wave, particularly Jacques Rivette, along with the editor of, of that journal, André Bazin, saying, well, actually, Mizuguchi is Japanese-Japanese. And yeah, I yeah, think yeah, 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 yeah. part of it comes from... Paul Schrader has a bit of this as well. I think part of it comes from this very romantic view of Japan um, and saying, well, well, if we're going to talk about Japanese cinema, we're, we're going to talk about the highbrow, modernist Japanese cinema of uh, the, the, the kind of minimal approach of Ozu or, or what Mizuguchi does. Mizuguchi yeah. tells the tale of the 40 Ronin, yes. three and a half hours long, and has all the action happening off camera. <laughs> um, so we just have discussions. And I, I think it's unfair because I think with that, people are not looking at the sheer range of what Kurosawa accomplished. Uh, they're just looking at the small aspects of his work. And I think when you do look at the whole body of work, the good films and some of the films not so good, there are always elements in there that you think he's really doing something quite amazing. And he's not doing Hollywood. He was breaking the 180 degree rule he would he would have jump uh, jump cuts, except they were axial cuts. You know, you were cutting going towards something, but it was done in a way that, that yeah. Hollywood would never allow mm. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was doing it intensified continuity before that was even yep. a, a thing. You know, um, I don't know. Ask if you have you got any sort of comment on that with the the sort of Japanese connection. I mean, particularly you know post war Japanese kind of revivalism, let's say, or reconstruction, let's say, is a, an interesting era of history anyway. And he's the director who's sort of placed within that 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 period isn't he i think it's i mean it's a tricky one because who am i <laughs> you know how do we in london sitting here at the south bank sure decide what is or isn't japanese cinema yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. i'm not qualified to say that all i can i mean i'm i'm kind of more of the you know we've just had the kind of sight and sound wells you know the greatest films in history kind of come out and we're talking about films or a filmmaker that's kind of considered in the canon and you know I, I i think the idea of we decide what is or isn't japanese cinema from the west is mad what i could say in every film that i've seen there's always something going on that i'm like well that's a bit unusual <laughs> that's a bit weird you know the level of performance is huge sometimes and you yeah, go right yeah, yeah. is that is that a japanese thing is that because of theater or kabuki or you know it going back to rashomon the thing that I'd forgotten, everyone talks about, it's a film made up of lots of point of views. The thing that I'd forgotten myself was, and one of the point of views of a, is a bloke who's dead. 
you know, and that's just like not even really commented on. You know, one of them comes back from a, the beyond to give evidence in court. And I'm like, that's fucking Japanese. Pardon my French. That's quite Japanese. <laughs> you know, it's like that idea of just like seamlessly going into sort of something which is from another life or from beyond is not Western. That's yeah, yeah. not Hollywood. And that happens in a lot of the films like magical realism or something that goes on that. You're just like, that's unusual. Yeah. And I think that it's all in there. It's just that the techniques of filmmaking, like you said, he may have got them from John Ford or he may have seen them somewhere else. Then people take them back and steal them and re recreate yeah. them. But I think... But then you have, you, you're have you saying that about this character from the dead in Rashomon. And if you look at the majority of ho Hollywood films, when you have that kind of deus ex machina um, event happening in a film, it's seen as some kind of moral commentary on what's happening. For sure. But the guy beyond the grave is still lying. Yeah. That's what's extraordinary. That that says a lot about Kurosawa's worldview, is that even though sometimes someone might come out on top or, or we have a benevolent act at the end, let's take Ikuru. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing that this man does, but don't forget, we're not left solely with that. We're left with a bunch of bureaucrats trying to take credit sure. for what this person did. He, he doesn't have the best view of humanity. No, and also, but he also acknowledges that... that that um, that notion of, of humanity acting, say, inauthentically or in their own interest is often a product of the situation that they find themselves in as well, which is kind of uh, interesting and very different to the psycholo psychologically driven American cinema, which is that this person is inherently evil or, or whatever. It's, it's, really it's interesting and really complex stuff a lot of the time. And we talked a bit there about you know, the big hit, big hitters, is it? Well, the marquee films, you know, Ikiru, Seven Samurai, Rashomon. These are the ones that are talked about as part of can canonical lists. But we've all said that we're big fans of the quote-unquote lesser-known works. I mean, I've just watched I Live in Fear for the first time, and I'm going to talk about that when I talk to uh, Neil, my co-host, in, in, in part of the podcast. So I, I, I just wondered... What are the under-the-radar titles that you would kind of recommend and think, yeah, you've got to see that? His first film, Sanchez Sagata, um, I, is extraordinary. Again, it comes back to this thing. You can say on one hand, wow, he hit the ground running. The guy was already running about 500 <laughs> metres back. He'd been training. He'd been doing everything up to this point. And he actually says in his memoir that, he hadn't fully realized what a director's role is. Even though he'd been assistant director, he was still an assistant director on someone else's work. When he became yeah. director, he suddenly realized, wow, I'm, I'm in charge of all of this now. And I think Sanchez Sagata is so good a debut because he knew that he could control everything. And the things that sometimes I think a first-time director who's never directed or been an assistant director before, those things that they're grappling with, he knew about. He knew how to deal with those. He was actually dealing with the minutiae. And I think that, that's, that's what's really interesting yeah. with his. I'd, I'd say to people, I think because his period films are the best-known films, get to the modern stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, Stray Dog, Cop oh, Loses great. His Gun. I mean, it was funny. I was watching. I did watch that in prep. In prep for this, and I, I was like, "This is just a great procedural. Yeah. I don't even need to worry about if it, is it Japanese, is it this, is it that, is it Kurosawa. It's like this is just a great, a great film to watch. And you know, it's it's amazing what you were talking about in terms of seeing them, seeing them here. And I guess 
you know, in, in the contemporary world, we're always negotiating between streaming and do we go see something at, at, the, at the cinema? And, you know, we're always making those decisions for various, various reasons. But I wondered, like, with a, with a repertory season like this, with a great old master, and I know you've already sort of said, you know, it is great to see them at the cinema. But it, when I was watching Seven Samurai here at the BFI One, and it was just like, oh my God, I'm being represented with cinema again after lockdown and, you know, we're encouraging people to get back to the cinema. It's almost kind of like kind of like coming through that tra trauma. There's almost a sort of freshness to go back to Kurosawa or someone like that, you know? I think that's great. I think you're absolutely right. I think that we're all still somehow dealing with that. Um, yeah. And, and, I, and I, I definitely think I am as well. You know, uh, it's funny, you know, for me, I'm caught up in, okay, I'm in the middle of making something. So I'm working on things and I'm, so I'm constantly sitting in front of an Avid or a computer and then, you know, it happens to be January. So it's sort of award season. So you have to watch a bunch of films because you have to vote. Yeah. And so you get caught up in all this other stuff. And then every now and again, it's what you've just said. It's really nice to go to see a movie and just get reminded, oh, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. actually just brilliant. That's a brilliant artist and that's a brilliant film, whatever, whichever one it may be. Um, and I think it's healthy <laughs> to do that because I, I'm, you know, I'm presently very much caught up in like I've got to see all the docs, I've got to see all the dramas because I've bloody got to vote, and and it's all great, and I'm seeing everything, but not not many of them. I don't know how many of them. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. the films that we're still watching in seventy years time. No, I mean I had that with when I've watched Seven Samurai. I mean I'm not going to name the films, but over the last the, the couple of days beforehand, I'd seen a couple of big movies, contemporary movies that were in the conversation. And I was like, I don't want to be get off my lawn, I'm an old man, but they really were nowhere near what, what Seven Samurai was, for sure. Sorry, it's, Ian. It's this, it's this funny thing, isn't it, that a big movie is not necessarily a cinematic film. No. So um, High and Low, his adaptation of one of the Ed McBain 87th Precinct novels, um, the first hour of that film, which is essentially about a businessman who is about to buy a company, he's taken a loan out, it's a really big thing, and then he thinks his son has been kidnapped, in actual fact it's his driver's son has been kidnapped, and there's this moral quandary over does he pay, um, and, and it's a typical Kurosawa, it's brilliant. But most of that first hour unfolds in one room, then it goes out, but it's incredibly cinematic. Um, and actually, I've, I'm just going to say, this is one of the reasons why I think Jason Wood at the BFI was inspired in asking you to, to curate this, Asif, because you've obviously, uh, we're doing an event tonight at the BFI and we're going to see a clip from The Warrior and you can see the links with Kurosawa there. But you're someone who's taken home video footage for documentaries like Amy and made it cinematic. And now you, the new film that you've got opening in February here, Creature, um, you take a choreographer like Akram Khan, whose work I have seen on stage is the most cinematic work. And now you've transferred that into cinema. And this is something that I, I always think, and hearing you speak before, that it always feels part of your sort of fabric. It's not, I'm going to make a film. It's, I'm going to make cinema. Thank you. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, that's the intention, definitely. I am that generation of these were the films that inspired me. But also, it's interesting. I want to make something visual. I want to make it cinematic. I want it to play on a big screen. And also, I want to be able to shift between genre. Yeah. 
And that's one of the things that we're talking about with Kurosawa is that he did all of these different genres. We may know him mostly for one, but there's all these other things there which need to be seen. And they're the directors I think that I respect the most are the ones that can try everything, do everything, and you can see their fingerprint. You can see that's their style. Whoops. That you can see that's their style. And and for me, that my, in my own way, I kind of, you know, I get bored of doing this, repeating myself. So I want to go off and do something else and I want to experiment and come out of my comfort zone. But also you're dealing with, humanity you're dealing with feelings and emotions and characters and and drama and how to make it as visual and as cinematic as possible and how, how can we learn something about us or mm. the world or what we mean or why are we here all of that is the theme that hopefully when you make films yeah. that's what i'm interested in anyway yeah i mean just to sort of as a as a closing point i think that the, the two things of the, the three things that that come up in terms of a Venn diagram of why Kurosawa is so influential or so recognized in the West or so used by Western filmmakers, let's say, um, you know, is the epic scale of the cinema. That's, that's for one thing. And then there's the universalist themes that we can all kind of gravitate towards. We all understand morality or truth or redemption, which are some of his themes, for example. But then he does place all of that in individualized stories, which is a, a sort of you know, very Western underpinning to Western cinema, I think. You know, and you could talk about that in terms of the anti-hero and, you know, some of Mifune's characters and stuff like that. Um, but but also in, in Ikiru and that sense of, you know, we can, we, we can, it allows us to project as audiences onto that character and think, yeah, this guy is faced with death and now he's re got regrets with his life. So it's, you can see why it translates so well to, to an, uh, a Western sensibility. Definitely. Um and it, uh, again, it's something that um, Asif has spoken about. Um, there's always humor there. I mean, even in the <laughs> bleakest of situations. Um, his use of the screen wipe, that obviously you ask anyone who's the most famous director with a screen wipe, and most people would say, well, George Lucas with Star Wars films. It's like, yeah, no, he got it from someone else. Um, it, it's a way of, of const creating constant motion yeah, yeah, yeah. until you get to Akuru. Um, when you have the women who are trying to get the money uh, from the various departments in government to be able to build this playground. The screen wipe is used in a humorous way to show them going from department to department. I think that sequence should be studied by people. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's it's yeah. just an opening, isn't it? It's yeah. a setup, and it's just genius. It's I, I think that's, that's what's essential. And also the fact that he wasn't ashamed to say, I make films to entertain people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I couldn't believe how much Seven Samurai is a comedy. Yeah. It's just laughs throughout, and you're like... This is amazing because it's set up so brilliantly. It's, it's so simple. It's the three-act structure. And, you know, as well, you look at it, it's a comedy. It's a romantic comedy because there's that romance. And then there's a sort of mentoring relationship between the master swordsman and the, the younger samurai. And then at the end of the, the day as well, it's the blueprint for every blockbuster you've ever seen where, you know, you, they're all coming to protect this one thing, which is the village in this case. And then there's the final siege and the big battle at the end. It's just like... You know, it, it, like I say, it's a blueprint for everything we see. And maybe that's what's interesting is to, we all take information, books, literature, paintings, art, culture, and reinterpret it in some way. And an artist or filmmaker in his case, the idea that he's taking literature from the West or from Russia, from the US, and then making it Japanese and then giving it back to the world sure. and the world then take it and make it very American. And then Americans take it and it becomes Italian. And then from Italian, it becomes Indian or whatever it might be. I think that's, great you know that's what's really interesting we all have our own stories but we also have the same stories 
And I think that's what's really interesting about Kurosawa is that they may seem Japanese, but you can totally relate to them. And often because they're based on Western literature or Shakespeare or whatever it might be. But also, you know, we all have the same experiences. Exactly. And it, I mean, people always talk about that West and uh, influence over um, Kurosawa. And I, I'm just saying this because I don't think we should have a pecking order between Kurosawa and Ozu and Mizuguchi. <laughs> it shouldn't be there. But everyone talks about the great Ozu film of Tokyo Story. I, I think it's now number three or four. No, number four, four yeah. in uh, the Sight and Sound poll. Well, as Ozu was quite open in saying, Tokyo Story is a remake of Leo McCary's 1937 film, Make Way for Tomorrow. It's this this thing cr crosses back and forth. The, yeah, yeah. the whole point is that an artist, a filmmaker, has found something universal in something very specific to to a culture, but that speaks to many other cultures, which is why there's this crossover. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a watering down. It's not a selling out. It's nothing like that. It's there's a commonality between people, no matter where they come from, and I think that's the thing to emphasise. And, and and to really champion. And I think Kurosawa has that in his films, that universal element. And that's that's why I think we're having the most extraordinary sellout performances. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it, it, I've seen just like Rashomon on the board is just sold out all the time. And the Seven Samurai is coming to IMAX. And I know that that, and Ran is as well. We'll get a ticket. Yeah, yeah. We've already got that sorted out. I just had out. someone come on the way here. Someone said, oh, I tried to get tickets sold out. I'm like, oh, bloody hell. I even, haven't even asked someone yet. We, we can blackmail someone. you've got some privileges there. I want to stand there, in the back. If... Yeah. <laughs> but we, I mean, I mean, and then you've got Isn't some... that exciting to see Kurosawa oh, yeah, on IMAX? Yeah, yeah, Isn't that yeah. great? You know, when you think about this idea of it, what what cinema was when he directed it, and now you get the chance to see these films on the bigger screens that you can get, and they're sold out. Yeah. That's and, good. And likewise, you know, his 1975 film, Dersu Uzala, um, the one film he made outside of Japan, not in Japanese, is screening in a pristine 70mm print. This is, this is the one film of all his films you can't get on DVD. It's not available to stream. Um, in this country, and I, I think that's brilliant. Why not? Yeah. Um, it's rights. Um, I think uh, the home entertainment rights are Moz Film, and at the moment yeah, <laughs> things yeah, are a little yeah. tricky. A bit dodgy with, there. Right. Yeah, I mean it is one of the tricky things. You know, the state of the world of of films that we may have seen when we were younger that were on TV. So many of them yeah. are hard to find. So many of them are hard to see. Some of them are lost. You know, that is also the nature of what's happening. Is that people weren't keeping an eye on them or protecting them, you know, and they get lost. And so when you get a chance to see these films, you should go and see them. And I can imagine, actually, Kurosawa, if he were alive today, he would be sat alongside Scorsese in the World Cinema Fund, championing oh, no, the film, because yeah, he, yeah, was, yeah. he was a cinephile as well as um, a great filmmaker. You know, he loved watching other people's films, which is why I think he built up so many relationships with not just American directors, British directors, European directors in his lifetime. Um, it wasn't. Ju it, it wasn't just one-way respect. He really, really loved watching other people's films. When was he last here? Not he must have sure. Been well, he he died in the late nineties, and he wasn't travelling. I think after Ran in eighty-five. Um, we should look on the. There Sutherland. is some good. Did good he did he win the uh, Sutherland Award? I wonder if it was because you know he did for Rashomon. Yeah, I think he won it for Rashomon, and he's definitely been over here. 
Um, there is some good s- stuff, interview stuff translated now with uh, subtitles um, on, on YouTube, so you can really hear some of his You know, we uh, are sitting interviews. in a historic building where exactly. all of these filmmakers would have been here at the National Film Theatre yeah. and presented their work, and the audiences would have seen something from incredible from around the world for the first time, and they would have come backstage, and I think that, that it's nice to be talking about him and those films here, yeah. you know, where it was all happening in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They all came here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, with the magic of podcasting, this will have gone out and you'll have already done your intro, which is happening tonight. I hope that's warmed you up a little bit for that. How'd it go? <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's amazing, like the time travel element of this sometimes. But um, yeah, I, I just want to say congratulations and thank you for bringing the the season to life. And, uh, you know, it's just been great delving delving in. And uh, Ian, Asif, thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks very much then to Asif and to Ian for their time in talking to me and discussing all things Akira Kurosawa. Thanks very much to Sarah at the BFI um, for setting that up. I really um, appreciate it. Um, Yeah, Neil, was there anything you wanted to just add very quickly before we we dive into a couple of films ourselves? Yeah, just a really great conversation. Uh, Good work. Um, Really enjoyed it. yeah, lots lots to think about in terms of their approach to the season, which I think was really astute. You know, I think they covered a lot of maybe some of the, the questions that you, you might have about putting on a season like this in 2023. And I think they're kind of very aware of a lot of the questions that might arise. And I think they've they've really kind of thought about that in their curation in really interesting ways, which is which is great. And yeah, it's a it's a fantastic kind of thematically put together season. One thing I did want to sort of mention that sort of came out of watching a couple of the titles was how yeah this this kind of continuing question around kurosawa and and sort of what might be broadly termed western cinema you know and and whether there's a kind of rip off here or an homage there or like what's really going on and i think asif sort of talked really really sort of eloquently about how the influence flows around the globe over time you know and filmmakers are kind of responding to each other in really interesting ways and the way I'd sort of thought about that before I heard the interview but certainly watching the films was watching Stray Dog and feeling how close it is to Bicycle Thieves from the year earlier you know it takes this really symbolic cinematic object and puts the person you know who owns that object in a kind of kind of a moral panic um, about retrieving it and it it's amazing that they're kind of years apart. I doubt they, you know, I don't know whether Kurosawa saw it, but certainly, you know, that kind of post-war feeling of, you know, rebuilding and stability and certainty that people were kind of yearning for is kind of all over both of those films in really interesting ways. And they're only a year apart, but they're, they're very, very similar, um, which I think happens a lot where, you know, people sort of respond things spring up all over the globe at the same time which i think is really interesting and the other one was which is a film you're going to talk about in a second which hopefully be a nice segue in is uh, i live in fear and how you know thinking that Sidney lumet was a huge kurosawa fan you know a really really big kurosawa fan like one of his favorite filmmakers and 
and how that's a couple of years before 12 angry men but the whole opening sequence feels really similar you know there's this really congested space there's a lot of people vying for this kind of yeah. you know dominance in this space and they just feel like there there is a connection there you know and whether it's overt whether it's explicit you know i find it really fascinating that you've got this filmmaker on the other side of the world responding very directly to kind of political issues of the day and yet formally it's very close to what a filmmaker does a couple of years later in america with a different subject but they 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 formally they're approaching it really so i just you know I, I i like considering it much more as a kind of dialogue between filmmakers um who are using cinema as the language that they're sharing rather than anything else so that was the only thing that sort of came out of that was maybe thinking about it as a dialogue rather than as a a straight kind of taking from a um uh, from a source yeah no i think that's that's really clear and i think also what what clicks into that and this does segue into um the first film that I'm going to talk about in a little bit of detail, which is I Live in Fear, as you mentioned there. And interestingly, I kind of, yeah, now you mention it, the the Lumet, 12 Angry Men is a really, yeah, it's a great shout that. Um, but I was kind of, the first thing I was sort of looking at was where it sits in his filmography. You know, so you've got 49, you've got Stray Dog, then Scandal, Rashomon, The Idiot, 51, Ikiru in 52, Seven Samurai 54, then I Live in Fear 55, and then Throne of Blood afterwards. So you've got like this film wedged in what is, you know, probably if he's going to, if you're going to say that, that there's a run that is, you know, top Kurosawa, it's, it's that, it's that period late, you know, late 40s into the early 50s. You know, I know he does great stuff later on, and, you know, it's a, it's a career of sort of, I mean, he's, no, nobody ever goes straight up or straight back down. I mean, some filmmakers maybe have got the bell curve of, you know, they hit a peak and then they go downhill. But like Kurosawa seems to be just making great films and then something that's a bit more personal or something that's a bit offbeat, something maybe that doesn't quite work. But it's interesting how this this wasn't a big success when it first came out, I Live in Fear. And maybe that's because on the back of, it, it, it comes on the back of Seven Samurai, which is such a huge epic. And this almost go, does go back both to maybe Kurosawa's concerns with Japan in the in in the sort of modernist sense, or you know the post-war, what is Japan after the Second World War uh, concerns or anxieties that the director might have, and also it's much and, and and maybe in a similar vein to Ikiru, but it's much more socially socially kind of contextualized than Ikiru is, um, and yeah, I mean maybe the other two films that perhaps sit alongside it thematically. And in that in, in that sense, so uh, one wonderful Sunday in Stray Dog, perhaps. I mean, this is less of much less of a of a genre movie than Stray Dog is. That's for sure. I mean, it's a really kind of mourns, mournful film. It's got a lot of pathos in it, and it's it'd be interesting to see how much the to think about how much the director is depicting a society or, or making a comment on a society merging from the, the you know the terrors or living through the terrors of of um you know the potential for nuclear holocaust um and 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 whether how much that that is a part of him as well is an interesting thing because one of the things about this film is the it, it the, the film doesn't really answer any of its own questions i found 
And, I, and these are some of the reasons why I think it, it didn't really do so so well, you know, at, at, at the box office, perhaps. It's not got the corners or the, 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 the closure or the, you know, the, the, the wrestling through of ideas to a, to a specific point in, in the way that the other films that, that he's done. Um, yeah, it's, it's another Mifuni collaboration. And, and yeah, we'll talk about that, that his performance, but he plays, a, he plays an old, old man, basically, with, with sort of uh, makeup prosthetics on. But it's funny how Mifuni still comes through, I think, under all that. He plays an old factory owner who becomes obsessively paranoid about nuclear war. To the to the extent at which he decides he wants to sell up and move to to Brazil with his extended family, because he becomes so paranoid about the potential for nuclear war happening, and this includes his servile wife and I think their four children, and he's got several mistresses. I think he's got two mistresses that are still alive and kids with them, and then one mistress who's died and the kid is still there. And it, so there's a, there's an interesting sort of sense of the power of the patriarch and what the patriarch means in in post-war japan i mean maybe that this is the period where there are social mores that are changing where that is sort of becoming more looked down on that kind of idea that, that, that this big patriarch can kind of do what he wants and everybody else in the family looks the other way and the the, the wife just you know sort of stoically deals with it all and another one of his regular co- um collaborators takeshi shimura it, shimura plays a uh a, a, a dentist who's then a sort of part-time legal arbitrator who ends up in the, the beginning opening scenes of the film ends up in this courtroom where the family are essentially taking the father to a tribunal to kind of get him um, accused or, or or diagnosed as as being sort of mentally incompetent to administer his own finances essentially right because they don't none of them want want to go to South America so. The, there's there's interesting conversations that take place around the morality of what what is going on, and that also extends out to the idea of of you know a society living under the potential cloud of annihilation, and the the the, the children are sort of and a sort of living in in perennial denial of that. I don't even denial is not the right word, but living with it. Let let's say and and. I think that's where it becomes interesting because I think there are parallels with with a lot of the stuff that we've dealt with in COVID in the last few years and, you know, the ongoing crisis, you know, ecological, environmental crisis and that that sense of what should our attitude be towards it. So I think there are some interesting parallels there to be found in, you know, in, in sort of con- uh, contemporary contexts. Um, but but the, the the Mifune character, the protagonist, then he tra- because they rule against him and he can't take his family. He, he, tr- he tries to find ways to to get around that. Essentially, I won't give it away if you haven't seen it because it's on. Obviously, it's on the BFI player. But he resorts to some radical actions to try and force this move out to Brazil, and he eventually just becomes more and more mentally broken ta- broken down until you, you get you you know you get to the point where this paranoia sort of overtakes him. And Mifune is, is, it's a really interesting performance by him. He's very antagonistic and unsympathetic. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because whether, whether that borders on cartoonish, you could argue, and whether it's ever really able to get out of the facts, because underneath, you know, it's Mifune. Is, does he really uh, submerge into that uh, uh, as much as maybe another actor 
possibly could. But I, I enjoyed I enjoyed his performance. I thought it was I thought it was great. But it really is un, unsympathetic compared to almost anything I've, else I've seen him in. Um, but yeah, and and it doesn't end. You know, it doesn't end happily. There's a lot of pathos, and like I say, it doesn't really answer any of the questions. It leaves things open, not in an not necessarily in a kind of art house ambiguous way, way but more of a kind of who knows what the answers are to this question kind of way. And I, I did find some correlations with like Alan Renee's Night and Fog. I know I've seen that mentioned uh, elsewhere. And the and the the score is amazing as well. It's really weird, particularly at the beginning. You have this sort of sci-fi element to it, um, and that's Fumio um, Hayasaka, who and it was the the last film that he made with the uh, Kurosawa, and 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 it it does that thing which you get into Kurosawa films when it's actually contra rather than complementary to the images. So it gives this this sort of weird eerie type of feel which i think is in keeping with the with the sort of paranoia about you know this there could be an apocalypse to come but yeah really interesting worth a look um but not like a typical kurosawa piece of work i would say no uh thanks for that yeah really interesting some of the stuff you're saying there that because i i thought similar things when i was when i when i watched it it's amazing that you brought up covid because i was like oh yeah this is exactly how we talk about people who say the pandemic's still going on you know there's this kind of like shunt them off to the side um and i think that's yeah. what's interesting is that mafuni's character is unsympathetic and antagonistic but he's also got the film's moral logic bang on you know like that he sees the potential disaster and i think that's yeah. where it's kind of interestingly sort of generational and gendered because as you sort of said shimura's character sees learns to see it the same he doesn't have the same response in terms of his actions but he certainly sympathizes with Mifune's you know what what he thinks and what he sees as as a potential catastrophe for for his him and his family and Japan whereas yeah there is that sense from the younger generation they're just they know they feel the same but they're going to live with it I think that's a really astute sort of difference between the two and and I think that's where the ambiguity comes from as well yeah yeah like it's kind of sharing the it's it's complicated because people's experiences people's ages you know like that 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 plays a big role in terms of how you come at this these things which are kind of these big seismic things in terms of how long you've lived or how what how you saw you know particularly i think as well yeah kind of it is post-war you know so there's a generational difference about what that actually means in japan and you know from people who live through it in a very direct way and people who were younger or kids you know and that's really fascinating i think the what what i thought about it was it's it's shorter you know it's it most of his films even in in the period of like the contemporary japanese stuff kind of push two hours plus whereas this is you know hour 45 i think and it's it's much more direct you know that there's there's less time and less space given over to some of the things he does in other in other films where stretching out spending time with characters this is it's it is kind of didactic in terms of like this is the issue at hand and we're staying on it you know so it does make for a very very different experience um yeah and it does stand out because of all those things i think you know but i was i'd not seen it before so i was really glad to to see it as part of the season and yeah it's a fascinating piece of work and mafune's physicality is like because i was like when is this film made like i know he's in makeup but you know the fact that it's yeah. like the year after seven samurai you like yeah. he his embodiment is is kind of extraordinary 
um, yeah. How is that possible? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, amazing actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think the other thing to remember is this was, you, it's one of those things where you have to remember what, when this is coming out. This is like ten years after, you know, the Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. You know, th- th- this was a very real thing. And w- what's funny, I, I think, is that th- there's a little bit of a correlation in the way that we, as a as a, you know, as a as a country, as a continent, as a, and as a planet, really have still really not come to terms with what happened at, at COVID. I think a, a lot of us are still kind of in denial about it. And maybe that's mirrored in the, in the you know, what the kids and the family are sort of going through, yeah. where they're, they're, they have a, ref- there's a sort of refusal to process that because they're, you know, they're just wanting to kind of get on with things and get on with life and hopefully things will get back to normal. And he's, funnily enough, he's at the, the end, coming to the end of his life and therefore, there's a more of a there's more of an urgency, even though, you know, it's not going to affect him in the same way because you know he's he's lived his life as it were. So it's an it's it's an interesting set of moral quandaries, I think, that 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 is set up here out of you know a particular time. I think in the filmmaker's career, and I've, you know, I've read that, that I think he didn't really deal as directly with post-war Japan in the same way after this movie. So maybe this was his his sort of last attempt maybe unsuccessful in his own mind about resolving what the future of japan looks like you know because he does he definitely doesn't resolve it in the film no um and narratively he gives he 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 kind of the character kind of stops any potential for dialogue by 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 presenting this huge act you know the action of taking the family to brazil is 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 just allows the children to focus on this this shift you know so Mm. they never really talk about his fear or you know it's mentioned if i think it's mostly mentioned by shimura in conversation with his own son you know like in terms of what 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 are we actually talking about here well we're talking about utter sure you know we're talking about again yeah hiroshima and nagasaki again utter devastation like the you know annihilation yeah yeah. but yeah the the desire to talk about it and work through it is kind of impeded by himself at every turn, which I think is such a fascinating narrative device and gives the film a real energy, which is frustrating, you know, and yeah, allows allows the central conversation to never be had in such an interesting way that feels really resonant to now, you know, and the noise of focusing on, you know, talking about um, contracts, government contracts that's the only way we talk about the pandemic who got the contracts who got the ppe contracts Mm. all that waste of money it's like you know we don't have the conversations about what it really means because there's all these handy things to to actually focus on um to divert from the fear of talking about what we know has happened and what we know is still happening so yeah it's it's a it's a really really interesting film great let's talk a little bit about the the film you've picked so yeah, I I wanted to talk about High and Low um, from the early 60s and this was a film that I saw a long time ago and loved and yeah, just something about it was like this is the one I want to look at and I think because it was it was another adaptation it's an adaptation of Ed McBain a kind of American pulp author um, and just the curiosity of kind of thinking about 
about that as a starting point. And I thought it was interesting when Azif was talking about, and Ian were talking about uh, interpretations rather than adaptations. Because I, I love his adaptations, you know, Ran and Throne of Blood, but they're always, they're always interpretations. They're always interesting approaches to materials or finding things and, and drawing them out. Um, I also watched uh, The Bad Sleep Well, which is his loose interpretation of Hamlet, um, which is a really interesting film with Mifune, amazing again. And one of the things I loved about that was the way it used the idea of the ghost. There's a really amazing sequence around ghosts, which is just fantastic. But yeah, just the way he kind of approaches the material, latches on something and then kind of draws it out. And in High and Low, I it sort of brings together a lot of the stuff I see in other parts of his contemporary Japanese work sort of all brought together in a really I think a really wonderful way so it opens with this incredible long sequence where um, Mifune again plays this kind of executive in a shoe company whose son is kidnapped but not kidnapped because the, the kidnapper takes the wrong boy takes the chauffeur's boy as opposed to his boy and it's this really long sequence in a flat uh, in in an apartment overlooking um, Tokyo, and the it just it's so long and so detailed, and you know just he just kind of Mifune just kind of stalks the whole thing with this kind of incredible presence. But it's about his role at work, and then obviously his role in the family, his ambitions to take over the company. Then there's the kidnapping, and it all kind of plays out in like thirty minutes of of, of in one location that never feels theatrical because, as again came up in the the conversation like his 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 use of the camera is exquisite you know like it never feels stagey the camera's yeah, yeah, always yeah, doing incredible. something interesting yeah. like it's but it really it really sets up this it sets up all the issues in the film around poverty which kind of becomes back to again and again um where like making something of yourself and rising up from a position of poverty to a position of wealth the class implications of that, the relationship he has with the chauffeur, you know, and it, there's just so many interesting things come out in this kind of really kind of, yeah, just amazing sequence, um, which is very much like the bad sleep well, where there's this really long wedding sequence, which opens the film, which does something very, very similar. Um, and then the police arrive and it becomes a different film. Like it flows into a different film where they take over the film in terms of the yeah. point of view. <laughs> completely different yeah. Complete. and they and they it becomes this procedural where they're just really working hard to um to to, to find the kidnapper and they find the kidnapper and that you know and then, and then find the money and get mafune his money back because he pays the ransom and yeah he, he was, what's amazing is like he's able to juggle all of his interests around sort of class and business and the economy with a real affection for the police and, and and the work they do, which again feels very similar to Stray Dog. You know, yeah, so sure. much of the time in Stray Dog is spent on on Mifune's mentor, you know, where he's such a good cop and he's such a great character. And it's I love in, in, in High and Low how they just have all this banter. They're just laughing and joking and there's like a child's being yeah. kidnapped. But you really get a sense of like how, the, how they cope with how they cope you know they create this community of, of 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 policemen and they know it's hard work they know it's horrible work but they it, it's a really interesting yeah. portrayal i think and then the kidnapper comes in as a character and there's time spent with them and mafune's character kind of shrinks into the background kind of defeated by 
the actions that he basically it's not a spoiler but he has to give up the money he was going to use to buy the company and retain control of the company he uses that money to pay the ransom and then the police and the chauffeur kind of spend the rest of the film trying to get his money back and he just becomes this guy who mows the lawn and the film carries on without him but he's this presence in it um and what i think makes it such an extraordinary piece of work in terms of how it manages to do that which is not an easy thing to do particularly with a, an actor like mafune but certainly a character who's dominated the first 45 minutes of the film is through the filmmaking you know the there's two sequences in particular one on the train where the ransom payoff which is so tense and so exquisitely put together and so so kind of just terrifying in terms of you know the way it's shot and the way it's put together it's it's just kind of heart in mouth like it's you just like this is a master filmmaker um it's mission impossible style that that sequence it's incredible. yeah great shout it's it, that's exactly what it feels like you know all the points of view all the different characters <laughs> and yeah and then just the 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 fact that you feel the real jeopardy both on the train and then as it's whizzing past and you trying to glimpse the, the people who are waiting for the bag and have got the kid because there's that thing where they say like you know you he'll we'll, he'll show you the child and you see the child in the sort of the long shot as the train whizzes past it's kind of it's an incredible shot and you know technically it's just amazing um and then that kind of just puts you in mind of like well, this is extraordinary but then the sequence i think which is just unbelievable is a sequence later on where the police are staking out the kidnapper in a nightclub um and they're kind of following him round as they're trying to work out how he's going to get some drugs to kill um some of the people he did the the, the kidnapping with um and it's this really long procedural sequence but it's so well cut and then halfway through it they the, the kidnapper sort of goes into a nightclub and the police follow him and just the music the the way a lot of the narrative unfolds in terms of that so it's just absolutely incredible um and it's like that his fidelity to kind of telling the story in such a beautiful cinema is, is it never it never drops you know so you can have all these narrative twists and these changes of point of view and it's just you're so gripped by the storytelling um that you just you're absolutely swept up along with it and then at the end it's resolved and you're just like wow i cannot i don't know how he did that you know like and it's over two hours again but it's just like you know it's it's masterful you know um and all of that from essentially a very simple pulp kidnap kidnap movie and it's like wow that's seeing that in that story and being able to spin that that way of telling it is 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 kind of amazing um and the last note which which kind of is in um high and low and also live in fear and also stray dog is it's sweltering in the summer in yeah in in japan clearly because all of these characters are doing all of this stuff they're living through these in, immense crises and the sweat and the perspiration is just dripping off them they're constantly mopping themselves they're constantly trying to stay cool like i just like wow seeing the films in that kind of you know collection was like wow there's it's really interesting that the the strain he puts his characters under physically in this kind of environment alongside the high stakes of the story i just never really noticed it and it was really nice to see it in that way and just yeah like everyone's sweating all the time it must be maybe not want to go to japan in the summer um made me think i'll go in the autumn if i ever go yeah it's funny because a lot of people you know 
they've commented on um, Kurosawa's obsession with rain, but his films are as sweaty as they are rainy. So he's he's clearly got a kind of interest in <laughs> in the way that human beings sort of exist in this, you know, in a kind of uh, an arena of moisture, <laughs> let's say. And I, I don't know. Maybe it allows. Maybe it's a way of kind of adding texture to things. Do you know what I mean? To 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 the experience of watching a film. So it's not just flat. It, it's kind of like it gives you a. It gives your brain the brain of the audience a kind of sense of here's here is a you know the char- the characters are in an environment and they're feeling things haptically and and the rain is happening from it you know on top of them. And, 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 you know, obviously a lot of it fits in symbolically as well. But, yeah, just, I mean, again, just quickly sort of reacting to to that. That's the first thing I could, could think of. But, yeah, it's it's funny because it does link back to what you said earlier on about the, the Western influence or the, the influence of his films on the West and vice versa. And, you know, he's t- I think it's such a great shout to say that, you know, they're in dialogue. And I think this is where you get the, the perhaps... The, the the trite observation or the trite critique that you know well he's not quite up there with Ozu or Mizuguchi and, and maybe not quintessentially Japanese in that sense but he's he's quintessentially a filmmaker and 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 I think that he's not he's not riven by that sense of a auteurist style that has to manifest itself from film to film so people can kind of collectivize a personal vision across all of his work he's more he's more interested in the 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 sort of experimentation of mechanics and possibilities and yeah why not have half an hour of a um you know a sort of board meeting that sets up all the kind of political dynamics and economic dynamics at the start and which gives you then the context to realize why the decision to pay this ransom or not has more consequences beyond simply the moral one. You know what I mean? Because it would have been really simple and easy, in a, again, maybe in an American movie, to say, well, of course, the the, the protagonist will pay for the, you know, pay, pay it will either pay for the, the ransom of the, the chauffeur's boy because he's morally right, or he won't because he's an arsehole. You know what I mean? That would be the black and white way to do it. Whereas placing it in that sort of wider context it's kind of gives that character an, uh, an interesting depth and 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 again sort of going forward you know with the with, with the, the set pieces and the camera movements and again it links a little bit to what i said at the beginning about vertigo and, and just what sort of watching a hitchcock movie you can see the directorial intervention into where the camera should go and where the why why it's been placed there so it can then move there and the actors moving there and there's a lot of that and sometimes that does look a bit staged now from 2022 but Kurosawa never Kurosawa's films never seem to in the same way so it and it's interesting I think where you know you listen to Scorsese and you listen to Spielberg and they, and and it's like you know we 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 figured out what cinema was through watching watching Kurosawa and and it's it and it, and it's clear it's not just it's not just tech technique. It's kind of like yeah, because he makes he makes great films to watch, and this is this is a, a you know a great film, and it's not hmm. it it is it does have the elements of genre, but it's just so much more than that, you know. And you know we we watch a lot of genre films still today. I mean we're you know we're submerged in them, but there's very few. Maybe maybe it's because filmmakers are, are not allowed the latitude 
that Kurosawa mm. by this point had to 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 take a genre kind of element and really p- push it in in so many interesting ways. Yeah, I think that you know that that is a point I did want to sort of pick up on in terms of that idea of 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 genre and, and and what he does with it. I think you know, yeah, within Japan he's making samurai movies, which obviously you know feel <laughs> and are very Japanese, but a lot of the contemporary works particularly these the films that I was rewatching they are they are genre movies but they're also you know they are very much about Japan at that time you know and I think it's built into yeah it's built into the theme a lot you know particularly kind of the the, the generational tensions um between a kind of you know uh, an older an older generation and the younger generation comes up quite a lot but also you know it, it builds it into plot like in stray dog like the plot hinges on ration cards you know it's set in the ruins literally for four years after you know the devastation of world war Two, where you see what that world looks like and this character you know is kind of is going through it the politics of mm. japan are all in the locations they're all in these characters you know and the you get the sense from Mufune's character that he needs this. He's so invested in this particular way of life because he doesn't want to slip back down into poverty. You know, he's you know that there's they are very very astute in terms of how they are commenting mm. on the world yeah. around them in genre movies. And I think yeah, it's it, it, it he's probably the prime example of someone who. It has been written off as a genre filmmaker, which is insane because, you know, he's he's doing so many interesting things in that in those spaces that no one else is doing. You know, I think thinking about Mifune in Stray Dog, like he's he is the protagonist, but he's also not because he's racing around trying to find this gun that's been taken. But he doesn't resolve anything, really. He's responding all the time. Like the older cop is the one who's doing most of the police work. He's just a he's an observer, you know, but he's because of the presence of the of Mifune, like it's such an interesting thing to watch his character basically helpless racing around chasing his own tail. Like, you know, it, it's Vert's genre at every while also Mifune looks great and he's running around as a cop. Like it it's it's amazing how he does all this stuff at once, you know. But and I think what's interesting is never knowing what was he really going for. I think that's what you know, I've never read enough about him, but He's doing so much, but what? What? How did he see himself? Like, mm. what did? What was his purpose? Of because there's so much instinctive smartness in so much of this stuff that I think if you sat down and tried to do it methodically and tried to subvert it in all the ways he subverts it all the time, I don't think you could do it. I think he obviously had something that was driving him, and these were his instincts, and they were just so interesting that we're still pouring yeah. over them now and trying to work out what the hell he was going after. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it's just a pleasure to to revisit, you know, a lot of these films, and and you know, obviously, I mean, we talked a little bit about going to the cinema. Maybe we'll talk a bit more about that in the bonus. You know, the the, the sort of the pleasure and the privilege of that, depending on where you live. Um, so I'm very lucky that I'm, I'm I get to see some of this stuff live. I mean, <laughs> live at the auditorium, as it were. But it, you know, as the guy said in the interview, it is great that this is. Uh, that the BFI player is there and you can watch, you know, you can participate in this season, let's say. Um, and there's, you know, there is lots of stuff online. You know, if you're listening to us, 
then yeah, go and go and go and go and watch these films, and I'm sure you'll 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 get a lot out of it. You'll get a lot out of them, and and you know, I think part of our part of our reason for being as a podcast is just you know, from the beginning, it was always about bringing stuff to light that we like to watch, and it's not as if we're you know we're we're bringing light to Kurosawa. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need any um, introductions in terms of a sort of cinephile world. But yeah, to have that, have the have the season there to be able to participate in and have this conversation has been has been great. And uh, yeah, just a great excuse really to 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 come back to Kurosawa. Yeah, and I think that what is really important. I think we maybe even mentioned this the first time we did the Kurosawa episode. Is like, you know it's easy to take these filmmakers for granted and assume that everyone knows their work, everyone knows a lot of their work, or everyone understands why they might be significant in terms of cinematic history. And I don't think that's the case. I think that part of the role of curation, you know, repertory theatre, places like the BFI, is is to remind people, oh, actually, you know, this stuff, you have to revisit it because just revisiting these few films i was like things i didn't know things i'd forgotten things i hadn't seen because of the way i'd seen stuff in the past like it we don't know a lot about kurosawa even though we might have seen all of his films like you know spending time revisiting this stuff is really i think it's really important in terms of not taking it for granted and not assuming that oh yeah everyone knows kurosawa is great well do they and if they don't why don't they have they just not seen it have they not engaged with it like is it still worth looking back at this stuff you know and i think that that's important that's important cultural work i think so that it's not just assumed that everyone knows that seven samurai is a masterpiece Mm. yeah no no for sure so yeah great we hope you've enjoyed that um we're gonna go over to the uh to the bonus now and have a chat about various other films and maybe about film going more more broadly for sure uh yeah neil do you want to do you want to close us out sure so yeah a pleasure to uh to spend time talking about this thanks to as if and ian for the time for talking to dario for for the main interview thanks to sarah at the bfi for setting it up and for giving us access to the bfi player so we could watch this stuff um i will be retaining my subscription um the free the free press pass has done its job because because i'm i'm going to keep it um it's, it's really enjoying spending time on the on the bfi player um and yeah thanks to you all for listening um join us on the bonus uh, but if not we will catch you next time this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening